Section 13 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Zoology. Chapter 9. The Vertebrates, Part 4. Mammals, Part 1. The mammals form the highest and most important group of the vertebrata. Broadly speaking, they correspond to the popular terms of quadruped, but also include man himself, and the whales, seals, and manatees. As reptiles have scales and birds' feathers, mammals have hair as their most obvious character. But the skin is often partly, rarely wholly naked, and in a few mammals, scales or bony plates are also present, covering the surface more or less completely. The young are born alive and suckled by the mother. This is the primary distinguishing character. They are warm-blooded, air-breathing, the heart with four chambers, and lungs and heart are separated from the abdominal organs by a muscular diaphragm. The sense organs are more highly developed than in other vertebrates. The brain larger and more complex, the skull more consolidated. Teeth are nearly always present, and usually elaborated into various and often complex structures adapted to the various food requirements of the animal. The limbs and feet show an equally wide diversity in adaptation to various habits and modes of life. The tertiary period is often called the age of mammals. During that time, the mammals assumed the dominant position among animals, previously held by reptiles, and evolved, mostly from small ancestors of uniform type, into the diverse and often gigantic species of the present day. Ancestral mammals had first evolved from primitive reptiles long before, probably before the close of the age of amphibians, and these small primitive ancestors had been living side by side with the gigantic dinosaurs during all the age of reptiles. They were rare and of minute size, probably tree-living animals, and it is not unlikely that their arboreal life with its continual demands on intelligent action and readiness to grasp opportunities, stimulated the much higher grade of intelligence to which the mammals had attained when they first appear in numbers at the opening of the tertiary period. These primitive ancestral mammals were small, long-tailed animals, which might be compared to the modern tree shrews. They had flexible limbs and feet, slender body, moderately long neck, slender skull, and long jaws with teeth adapted to insect eating. The number of teeth was upward of 44. The toes were five on each foot, the digits flexible, clawed, the inner digit to some extent opposable, and with one less joint than the others. Fossil mammals have been found in great numbers and variety, in the formations of successive epochs of the tertiary period, 
and it is possible to trace the successive stages through which they evolved from these small primitive types into the various kinds of modern quadrupeds. Conversely, when the ancestral series of any modern quadruped is traced back, it is found leading down in every case toward this identical small primitive type, and when one examines and compares the structure and anatomy of any modern animal, it is seen that it is most easily explained as a modification from this common primitive type in adaptation to one or another habit of life. Some races have become herbivorous, others carnivorous, others fruit-eating, and the teeth have been modified in accordance. Some have remained arboreal, others have become terrestrial, aquatic, or fossorial. Some have remained small, others have become large, or even gigantic in size, and the limbs and feet have been modified to suit their various habits and size. In herbivorous mammals, the cheek teeth are used for crushing and grinding vegetable food, the front teeth for cropping. The true molars are enlarged and complicated into a more or less elaborate pattern of crests or crescentic ridges, which serve to chop or grind the food. The premolars either degenerate or become like the molars. The canines are sometimes enlarged into tusks for fighting, sometimes degenerate and disappear. The incisors are converted into spade-like teeth for nipping off food into large gnawing teeth, or degenerate and disappear. In carnivorous animals, on the other hand, the pointed canines, used for seizing and holding the prey, are large, sharp, and strong. The premolars, used for cutting the food, are well-developed. While the molars, used for grinding, tend to degenerate or disappear or to become more like the premolars and to be used chiefly for cutting up the food. In frugiferous animals, the cheek teeth are used for crushing fruits or nuts and become flat-topped. The premolars often degenerate. The front teeth, used for biting off the food, are converted into a row of little spade-shaped teeth. Animals of more mixed diet show various combinations of these characters in the dentition. The animals which have remained arboreal have retained and perfected the adaptation of limbs and feet to this purpose, but have departed less than any others from the primitive type. Among terrestrial mammals are found a variety of adaptations. Some have developed speed, to escape from their enemies or pursue their prey. For this purpose they have taken to walking or running upon the fingers, or even upon the tips of the claws, instead of, as at first, upon the flat of the foot. In consequence, the lower limbs and feet are lengthened, the joints of the feet made stronger and more compact, the side toes tend to degenerate, and the middle toes bear the weight of the body and the claws are converted into broad, strong hoofs, which finally support the whole weight. 
other terrestrial races have depended upon their fighting capacity rather than upon speed. They have increased rapidly in size, developed horns, tusks, armor plates, or spines for attack or defense, and the limbs have become adapted to bearing enormous weights with heavy bones, massive muscles, short, heavily padded feet. Fossorial mammals have developed short and exceedingly powerful limbs and great digging claws upon the feet. In aquatic mammals, the feet become webbed and are finally converted into paddles, or in such as developed, a powerful swimming tail, the hind limbs have degenerated and disappeared. Finally, one group of aerial mammals appears, the bats, in which the forelimbs are converted into wings by lengthening the fingers and developing a web between them and the sides of body and tail. Various arboreal mammals also have web-like expansions of the skin, which they stretch as parachutes in leaping from bow to bow. The quadrupeds are less dependent upon temperature and climate than most of the lower animals, while they are more strictly limited in their migrations by the boundaries of the continents and islands which they inhabit. Moreover, they are not so ancient as the invertebrates and lower vertebrates. Their evolution and dispersal over the world has mostly occurred during the tertiary period, when the distribution of land and water was not so very different from what it is at present. We find that the present general arrangement of the land areas, with the great central northern land mass and isolated peninsular continents stretching down into the southern hemisphere, is the key to the geographical distribution of mammals. They have spread out in successive waves of migration from one part or another of the whole Arctic region, and each new wave or higher stages of evolution in the different races has driven its more primitive predecessors before it toward the remotest confines of the southern continents and islands. This general tendency has been limited by the land connections with the southern continents and islands. The connection with South America was interrupted during a part of the tertiary, and during that interruption the South American animals evolved independently into races which were quite different from those of the northern world. When connection was resumed, the northern animals invaded South America, while some of the southern races invaded North America. But the superior quality of the animals evolved on the great northern landmass, enabling them to overcome and displace those of South American origin, which have nearly all become extinct. In Africa and in peninsular India, the connection was also interrupted for a time and then restored with the same results but the interruption did not last so long. Australia and the adjoining islands have been separated since before the tertiary period, and the higher mammals have never been able to reach those regions. In consequence, the more primitive mammals which reached there at an earlier period have evolved and specialized into a large and varied mammal fauna paralleling the higher mammals of the northern world. 
Some of the East Indian islands, now separated from the mainland only by shallow seas, have been united with it during the tertiary period, so that the great land animals could invade and occupy them. Other oceanic islands, like Celebes, Madagascar, the West Indies, New Zealand, and many smaller islands, are separated by deep oceans from the mainland. In these it is noted that land mammals are generally absent, or are peculiar types different from those of other regions, and probably developed on the islands themselves from such small animals as might, once in a long while, reach their shores on floating rafts drifted out from the mouths of rivers on the mainland. Small mammals, such as rodents, insectivores, or small lemurs, might once in a while gain a footing on the isolated island in this way, and once established in the absence of competition would evolve into a variety of larger races, as the marsupials did in Australia. In this way can be explained why Madagascar possesses none of the elephants, rhinoceroses, zebras, antelopes, dogs, cats, etc., of the adjoining coast of Africa, but does have a great number of lemurs not found elsewhere, a number of insectivores of a family Syntetidae, peculiar to the island, two or three carnivores, related to the civets but of a very exceptional character. The bush pigs may have been brought there by man. The pygmy hippopotami found fossil on the island may have reached it by swimming. But the absence of practically all the mainland animals, together with the presence of peculiar types which seem adapted to take their place, can scarcely be explained except by supposing that the island has been separated from the African mainland for a very long period. The problems of geographical distribution are a most fascinating branch of zoology and have attracted a large share of the attention of scientific men, especially in recent years. In the arrangement of this class of vertebrates, first must be set aside the egg-laying mammals of Australia as an exceedingly archaic type, to a great extent a connecting link between mammals and the primitive reptiles from which they are descended. As might be expected, these most ancient of mammals are found on the very outskirts of the mammalian domain, southern Australia and Tasmania, most remote from the main center of the mammalian evolution in the north. These form the subclass Prototheria. The rest of the mammals may be divided again into a small and a large group, the marsupials, or pouched mammals, metatheria, in which the young are born alive but very immature and are carried for some time in a pouch on the underside of the mother's body until they are able to shift for themselves, and the placental mammals, eutheria, including all the rest. In the placentals, the young are more mature when born and are never carried about in a pouch. Either they are able to follow the mother about, or she remains with them in some suitably protected spot until they are well grown. There are, of course, numerous distinctions in the skeleton and soft anatomy 
to support this division of the mammals into prototherians, metatherians, and eutherians. But from a modern point of view, it is well to lay weight on these differences in the care of the young. For, as has been seen among invertebrates, the progressively greater care of the young, the prolongation of infancy, appears to be more than anything else the key to the possibilities of higher development. Among insects, it is patent that the higher life of the social wasps and bees centers mainly about the care of the young. It is no less true among vertebrates. The most prominent feature in the life of birds and mammals is the care that they take of their young, and in the higher orders of mammals, the period of infancy becomes progressively longer until it reaches its maximum in man. The mammalia are further divisible into twenty-three orders, as generally accepted in recent years. Their arrangement is as follows. 1. Subclass Prototheria, egg-laying mammals. 1. Order of Monotremata, Ornithorhynchus, and Echidna. 2. Subclass Metatheria, pouched mammals. 2. Order of Marsupalia, opossums, kangaroos, etc. 3. Subclass Eutheria, placental mammals. 3. Order Insectivora, hedgehogs, moles, etc. 4. Order Edentata, sloths, armadillos, etc. 5. Order Cetacea, whales, dolphins, etc. 6. Order Serenia, manatee and dugong. 7. Order Perisodactyla, horses, rhinoceroses, tapirs. 8. Order Arteriodactyla, pigs and ruminants. 9. Order Proposidia, elephants. 10 through 16. Orders Condylarthra, Amblypoda, Toxodontia, Liptoptema, Arsinoetheria, Embrythopoda, Astropotheria, extinct hoofed mammals. 17. Order Hyrocodia, conies. 18. Order Rodentia, rats, mice, rabbits, etc. 19 through 20. Orders Telodonta and Taniodonta, extinct clawed mammals. 21. Order of Carnivora, dogs, cats, weasels, civets, etc. 22. Order Chiroptera, bats. 23. Order Primates, lemurs, monkeys, apes, man. The egg-laying mammals, therefore, must be treated first. These two little animals, the ornithorhynchus, or duck-billed, and the echidna, or spiny anteater, inhabit southern Australia and Tasmania. They are the most archaic of all mammals, and from their geographic location may be regarded as the vanguard of the great mammalian dispersion which has spread out in successive waves from the northern continental landmass. They are classed with mammals because of their hair-covered skin, solid skull, jaws all of one piece, and various features of their anatomy, but they retain numerous characters in the skeleton approaching those of the primitive reptiles of the coal period, 
from which the mammals are believed to be descended. Like the marsupials, these animals are provided with a pouch, to which the eggs are transferred after they are laid. The eggs are hatched in the pouch, and the young animal remains there for some time, nourished by a secretion from the skin of the mother. The ornithorhynchus lives in burrows along the margin of ponds and streams, feeding upon freshwater clams, crustaceans, etc. During the Australian winter, says Dr. Samon, from June till the end of August, when the nights are cold, you may be sure to find the animals in the river at sunrise and sunset. If you are near the river early enough to watch the rising of the sun, you will see something flat, one or two feet in length, floating on the water, like a plank, as soon as the first sunbeams strike the river surface and allow you to discern single objects. Sometimes it lies motionless for a while, then it disappears, to reappear again after a few moments in quite a different place. This is an ornithorhynchus seeking its breakfast in the mire of the river. The echidna, or spiny anteater, is a shy, nocturnal burrowing animal living in the dense, impenetrable scrub and wild, rocky parts of the country. On its nightly expeditions, says Samon again, the anteater seeks worms and insects of all kinds, which it extracts from their hiding places in earth holes between stones and in rotting bark, by means of its long, worm-like tongue. Its principal food, however, consists of ants, which it captures like other anteaters by thrusting its tongue into the anthill, waiting till it is covered with ants, and then drawing it in quickly. It is interesting to note that the pouched mammals have a lower and less constant body temperature than any of the higher mammals. In this respect, also, they approach the reptiles and other cold-blooded vertebrates. The marsupials are more or less intermediate between the monotremes and the placental mammals, but decidedly nearer in all respects to the latter. They lack a placenta, that particular internal organ which enables the young to be brought to a maturer, more perfected state before birth. In consequence, they are born in a very rudimentary condition, and are usually transferred to a pouch on the underside of the mother to complete their development. Teats are present, as in the higher mammals, and the little animal is suckled within the pouch. Marsupials are today chiefly found in Australia and the adjacent islands. The opossums of South and Central America, of which one species ranges northward into the United States, and a rare little animal, Canolestes, recently discovered in the Andean highlands, are the only living representatives of the order outside of Australasia except that a few of the Australian marsupials also range northward into the East Indies. Formerly, the marsupials were worldwide in their distribution. It is probable that most, if not all, of the tiny shrew-like mammals, which have been referred to as contemporaries of the gigantic dinosaurs during the age of reptiles, were marsupials, or at least equivalent to them in their stage of evolution. But with the advent of the higher placental mammals at the beginning of the tertiary period, the marsupials gradually disappeared from the northern world. 
a few survivors having been found among the early tertiary mammals of Europe and North America, and they were abundant in South America until the later part of the tertiary period, when a great invasion of the northern mammals swept them out of existence, save for the opossums and canolistes. In Australia, however, they were undisturbed by northern competitors, as this continent remained isolated throughout the tertiary period. They were allowed, says Samon, to thrive unhindered, to regard the bush forests, the river banks, the rocks and mountains, the grassy pastures, as their undisputed domain, adapting themselves more and more to the characters of their surroundings. Some feed on the grass of the bush, like kangaroos and wallabies. Others dig for roots and bulbs, like the kangaroo rats. Still others seek their food on eucalyptus trees, like phasolarctus, the Australian opossum, and the flying marsupials. Bandicoots, paramelidae, and the shrew-like bush rats and bush mice, facecologli, and tekinomies, are mostly insectivorous. The native cat, the Tasmanian devil, and the pouched wolf carnivorous, with teeth strongly reminding us of those of placentalia, as different as their food are the dwellings, the habits, and the modes of locomotion in all these animals. Like jumping mice, the kangaroos hop over the level country, some of them, for instance, the rock wallabies, being able to execute their leaps also in mountainous country with the cleverness of a camwa, while the tree kangaroo, Dendrolagus, performs real climbing antics in the crowns of the highest trees. We see the Australian opossum and the couscous climb with the agility of squirrels. Petorus flits from tree to tree, and is therefore erroneous called by the Australians flying squirrel. Phascolarctos, however, climbs along as lazily as any sloth. Slinking is the gait of the native cat, and trotting that of the pouched wolf. In the grass, in rocky caves, on the ground, or on trees, we find the hiding places and lairs of the marsupials. Like rabbits, the wombats dig long and deep burrows in the ground, and quite subterranean are the life and habits of the blind Notorix typhlops, which latter has but recently been discovered in the deepest interior of Australia, and the mean and habits of which strongly remind us of our mole. And still all these animals have nothing to do with moles, squirrels, flying squirrels, rats, jumping mice, shrew mice, cats, and wolves. All of them are marsupials, and related much more closely to each other than to any of the other placental mammals which they resemble as to looks, movements, or habits, and from which they derive their popular names. Further, we must not imagine that the placental beasts of prey have sprung from similar marsupial beasts of prey, the genuine jumping mice from kangaroos, moles from notorites, and so on. It is more probable that the transition from marsupials to placentals took place only once, and from a less specialized group of marsupials than now exists. The original group of placentals that arose thence 
has differentiated into the distinct series like insectivora rodents hoofed animals beasts of prey lemurs apes and men the outer resemblance between certain groups of marsupials and placentals is a phenomenon of convergence and is produced by adaptation to similar conditions of life it ought to be judged like the resemblance between wood lice and centipedes fishes and whales birds and bats outer resemblance is not always a proof of blood relationship echidna porcupine and hedgehog are nowise related much as they resemble each other since the former is related to ornithorhynchus the second to chinchilla and the last to the mole the marsupials are divided into two main groups in the polyprotodonts mostly carnivorous and insectivorous the canine teeth are sharp and strong the incisor teeth small and set in a traverse row and the cheek teeth adapted to cutting flesh or insect food in the diprotodonts mostly herbivorous and frugivorous the canine teeth are minute or absent and one or two pair of the incisor teeth are enlarged somewhat as in rodents while the cheek teeth are fitted for crushing or chopping vegetation fruit or nuts in the first group the feet have usually five separate well-developed toes in the second the toes are usually reduced in number the fourth digit enlarged the others enclosed in a common integument of the carnivorous marsupials or polyprotodonts the american opossums and the thylacine or tasmanian wolf the tasmanian devil sarcophilus and dasior or native cat of australia are the best known living types in the australian regions these take the place of true placental carnivora of other continents which are unknown there except for the dingo or wild dog probably introduced by man but even in the short time that the dingo has been present on the main continent of australia his superiority as a hunter over his marsupial competitors is shown by the fact that the thylacine and devil abundant in australia in prehistoric times have disappeared from the mainland and survive only in tasmania where dingoes have not been introduced in south america during the tertiary period while it was an island continent there were likewise no true carnivora and there too the carnivorous marsupials developed into large wolf-like lion-like and smaller cat-like or civet-like forms to prey upon the various herbivora when toward the end of the tertiary the continent was united with north america true carnivores invaded it from the north and soon caused the extinction of all the carnivorous marsupials except the opossums whose arboreal habits and more omnivorous or insectivorous diet enabled them to survive to the present day the fossil remains of these extinct south american marsupial carnivores discovered in recent years show so much resemblance to the thylacines that they have been referred to the same family and supposed to have migrated from australia to south america 
by means of land connections with the Antarctic continent. In the present writer's opinion, the resemblance is better explained as due to similar adaptation from primitive opossum-like marsupials, originally derived, with the rest of the South American and Australian mammals, from those primitive mammals which lived during the age of reptiles in the northern continents. These primitive marsupials, ancestors of the various living marsupials, and from which, at a somewhat earlier period, the remote ancestors of the higher or placental mammals had branched off, are pretty closely represented in the living opossums, so that one may, without very great straining of facts, place the possum in the gallery of ancestral portraits and picture from him the sort of animal from which man, in common with all the quadrupeds, is remotely descended little rat-like or shrew-like animals with long prehensile tail with opposable thumb and great toe insectivorous living in trees and venturing out from their hiding places mainly by night alert and intelligent above their fellows of the reptilian era but not by the higher standards of modern quadrupeds such as far as can be judged were the remote ancestors of the mammals and such are the opossums today. The thylacine is a much larger animal, with teeth specialized for flesh-eating and feet for running. Its superficial resemblance to a wolf is well shown in the illustration. The striped rump suggests the tiger, also while the long, stiff tail is an opossum character. It is now limited to the mountains of Tasmania, as is also the related Tasmanian devil, but both are found fossil in Australia. The Dasuries are smaller, civet-like animals of Australia and Tasmania, which take the place of the smaller, predaceous carnivora of other parts of the world. The bandicoots are small, omnivorous, or insectivorous marsupials, with teeth like those of the carnivorous group, but feet more like those of the herbivorous group. In the wombats, the reverse is the case, the teeth being of the diprototent type, while the feet have five well-developed toes with strong claws. These animals, in their heavy, clumsy build, short, stubby tail, and shuffling walk, very much resemble small bears and are commonly known as native bears. The phalangers are small, squirrel-like marsupials, arboreal in their habits and found throughout Australasia, ranging as far north and west as Amboina and Celebes among the East Indian islands. The largest living marsupials are the kangaroos, which in Australia take the place of the hoofed quadrupeds of other continents. These animals, says Samon, will always hold their own as the most characteristic feature of Australia. Everyone who has observed them in zoological gardens and menageries will have remarked that there exist larger and smaller kinds of this animal, but we are apt to lose sight of the many and considerable differences between the various species and genera in the simple fact that the general quaintness of their aspect the peculiar structure of their extremities and tail, and the queer manner of their locomotion, 
leads us to overlook everything else. Nevertheless, these animals, apparently so uniform in structure, show an astonishing variety in their more minute features, their habits, and their distribution. If we reckon only the genuine macropodidae, without the kangaroo rats, we have to admit seven genera, compromising forty-three species, and of these twenty-three belong to the genus Macropus, the real kangaroo. The Australian colonists call all the larger kinds kangaroos, the smaller kinds they call wallabies. The kangaroos, for the most part, prefer the open bush, the level or undulating ground of which gives them occasion to exercise their splendid leaping powers, besides offering them a rich pasture. The leaps of the bigger kinds have generally a length of several yards. When chased, they heighten the extent of a single leap to ten yards or more. The jerk is produced by the hind legs without assistance from the tail, as some think. This is easily proved by observing the track the animal's leaps imprint upon the ground. The tail is flourished at every leap, but hardly touches the earth. It seems to help the leaping animals to steer and to support its weight while resting. While the kangaroos are the largest of living marsupials, the extinct diprotodon and nototherium which inhabited Australia during the Pleistocene epoch, were gigantic animals, equaling the Indian rhinoceros in bulk, and curiously resembling the modern elephant in the long, straight, massive, post-like limbs and short, rounded, stubby feet. They were related to the wombats, and may in fact be regarded as a sort of gigantic development of this race, adapted probably to a less arid climate and more abundant vegetation than now prevails in Australia. Numerous skeletons of these extinct giants have lately been found in the dried-up lakes of West Australia, north of Adelaide. End of Part 1 End of Section 13